that's why colleges also attach a ton of fees and expenses and all that kind of stuff too because there's a guarantee from the government that the government will guarantee the loan and so they also add like athletics fees and um, it's not you're not just paying for classes yeah. they require you live in a dorm for a little while they add fees for the rec center that you never use they add fees for the you know whatever 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 and then uh, that turns into a great big inflated bill that Uncle Sam guarantees that you'll pay back eventually isn't that nice of him he guarantees that one day you'll finish paying it back. Um, that's another type of indentured servitude. Uh, could you think of any other types that we still operate with today? So MasterCard, student loans, anything else? Taxes. <laughs> I love how taxes always works its way in. You know, like every time, every time taxes slips its way in here. Yeah, that's not wrong, you know, that's not wrong. Indentured servitude, taxes, that's right. Um, now, is biblical slavery, indentured servitude, is that man-stealing? Remember what man-stealing was? Man-stealing, what's the closest historical example that we can point to to find an example of man-stealing? Chattel slavery, specifically when, Jesse? Look, I'll let you have one. You were going to do a different one. All right, fine. Oh, you were going to say chattel. We're talking about what, when, what was chattel slavery, most recent time it happened? 1800s in the United States, right? Around the Civil War era. We're talking about the, the slavery that operated here in the country. That was literally man-stealing, by and large, in most cases, which means it was bad. That's a bad type. Now, um, are we talking about prisoners of war whenever we say uh, biblical servanthood? No, there's a different category entirely for prisoners of war, okay? So that's why you would see sometimes, like I think it was John that pointed out Leviticus 17 at one point, there's a different category for someone going out and, and uh, going to war with another people, and those people being conquered, and then having POWs that come back and, and are doing labor. You see, that's a totally different category. And we would operate that way too. Like prisoners of war, that's a different thing outside of um, indentured servitude. How long could an indentured servant work for you? Six years, and on the seventh they were... They were released. They were arrested. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But what about, Pastor Stewart, what about in Exodus 21, all those weird icky laws that talk about women being sold in? Do y'all remember we talked about that last week? I'm just doing a kind of a comprehensive review before we jump into today's bit. Y'all remember? What, what, happened, what happened with the icky laws where it was like women were being sold into slavery? What was the purpose of that? So, okay, that's, Mady, Mady makes that point. I have to remember that I have to restate sta people's statements sometimes or the recording doesn't pick it up. So part of it was the family just entered into extreme poverty and they still had children to care for, right? And so one of the options that the fathers would have would be to send their daughters into, uh, into a indentured servitude with another master. And the master would take that young woman into his house, sometimes intended to be his bride, but sometimes not. You know, there's all kinds of qualifying laws under that. But his job then was to care for her. Now, remember, he owned her labor, and there were special laws that applied to women. Like if he abused her in any way, or if he, was, if he promised to marry her and then changed her mind, she was allowed to go free. Like all that stuff was applied. But now the family who just entered into extreme poverty had an opportunity to recover a little bit of money and maybe go forward, and they guaranteed that their daughter was going to be cared for by someone else. You see, like it was a it was a biblical social security network is really what it was. We think we read that and we think they sold that poor girl 
If it was operating according to the parameters of the Bible, what you're actually getting is a system where people are able to get cared for and a guarantee that inside of seven years, they would be set free, right? They would be released of all their debts. You don't get that with MasterCard. MasterCard just owns you until you pay it off. And if you die, your kids pay it off. And if you, like, it's a terrible, that's a wicked system. We get no jubilee here in America because we've left Christianity so, so far behind. So there's all the, all the bits of review from last week. I want to culminate last week's, go to Jeremiah chapter 24. Well, you don't have to go there, but I'm going to read it. Jeremiah chapter 24, verses 8 through 16. I want to read this, and I want to, to illustrate to you that America's failure in recognizing God's regulations over slavery is not unique to America. It's actually a problem that's been throughout history, okay? So this is God's people. God's people specifically have been given God's laws. They know what they're supposed to do. And in Jeremiah 24, they're even reminded of what to do, okay? God even says, hey, this is the way that you need to live. And so they obey for a minute, and then they stop. Let's look at it together. Jeremiah chapter 24, starting in verse 8. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Now, if you just want to get depressed, read the book of Jeremiah. If you're just looking for something like, I just need to black pill today. You know, like Jeremiah is a book for that, man. It is, whoo, it just gets worse and worse and worse. Jeremiah culminates in the prophet Jeremiah telling the people of Israel, do not flee to Israel. Do not flee to Egypt. You're going to go there to die. And all of Israel says, nah, we're going to Egypt and you're coming with us. And they capture Jeremiah, and they drag him with them, and guess what that happens to all of them in Egypt? They all die. Like, it's a terrible, terrible book. Yeah? Are we talking about the same Jeremiah chapter 24 that's about the pigs? Jeremiah 24, verse 8, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah. Is that the right? Okay, then ignore me. I'm just reading from the wrong reference that I wrote down, and I can't tell you exactly where it is. So just listen close and I'm going to bring you through it. You can Google probably the first line if you want to and find the actual citation and help the class with it later. But here we go, starting in verse 8. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, don't get distracted Googling, just listen right now, Google later. After King Zedekiah had made a covenant with the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them, listen, that everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew his brother. And they obeyed. Right? So he's like, hey guys, let your slaves go. That's what he's saying. Hey guys, let your slaves go. We got to quit this kind of stuff. So no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. And they obeyed all the officials, this is verse 10, all the officials and all the people who had entered into the covenant that everyone would set free the people who had, oh, I'm sorry, set free his slave, male or female, so that they would not be enslaved again. They obeyed and set them free. Verse 11. But afterward, they turned around and took back the male and female slaves they had set free. Did you hear that? And brought them into subjection as slaves. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I myself made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, saying at the end of seven years, each of you must set free his fellow Hebrews who had been sold to you. And has served you six years. You must free them. But your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. You recently repented and did what was right, each to his neighbor. And you made covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. But then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves, whom you had set free according to their desire. 
and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. So this is a repeated problem, you see? We saw this exact same thing. This is why God references Egypt, because that's the exact same thing that happened with Egypt. Egypt had all this free labor, right? And then they lost all that free labor because God sent them to hell on earth with all the plagues. And then at the end of that, what happened? They said, wait, where's all our free labor? We got to go get it back. And they, this is exactly what happened here, okay? Israel releases its slaves, its, its fellow slaves, and then they say, wait, all our free labor, our household economy is wrecked because they built it the wrong way in the first place, okay? Repentance, repenting of sin, there's always restitution involved, and their restitution was going to be at least the reset of their household economies. Oh man, we had all this free labor from these slaves, but now we don't have them anymore. Our household economy is wrecked. What are we going to do? Quick, go back and get the slaves again. Isn't that so common, a temptation for you guys? Right? Like you repent of your sin, and you're like, you're zealous about your repentance for a little bit. And then give it a few days, and you're like, I'm still feeling that temptation, though. I'm feeling that, I'm feeling that itch. I gotta, you know what I'm saying? This is, this is why repentance is a trajectorial thing, and we see that with him. All right, but let's just keep walking through Exodus. So that's it. Boop. I put the period on uh, biblical indentured servanthood. We're done with that. We're going to move on now, and I'm just going to start walking through Exodus chapter 21. Um, so if you want to do this, you're welcome to do this. You can do a little bit of legwork on Exodus chapter 21 on your own, just like as some general reading. I think we just went through this in our Bible reading plan, didn't we? No, that's us at the house. Us at the house reading at the dinner table. We just went through this. Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. So I would encourage you, if you start with Exodus 20, just kind of toss through the next couple of chapters. I'm telling you, man, like it's a great conversation with the kids. They're always like, so wait a second. So wait, hold on. This law says, you know, it's a ton of fun. It's a ton of fun. Don't think your kids can't get this stuff. They can totally get it. And it's a good conversation starter around the dinner table for sure. I read uh, New Testament, Paul's epistles, and everybody's like falling asleep at the table. I read Exodus about God's law, and the kids are like, now hold on a second. You know, they got questions. They want to talk through things. It's a ton of fun. All right, so Exodus chapter 21. Let's pick up in verse 12. I want you to pay attention to the way these laws are structured. We're going to go through three real fast, and then I want you to notice kind of how this works. So let's just start with verse 12 real quick. We're going to talk about the city of refuge and manslaughter. This is brief. Um, so whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but, let God, let, uh, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which you may flee. But if a man willfully attacks to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Now, okay, so this is one of the specific situations where God is framing out the death penalty when it comes to murder and manslaughter. And this is why our laws today have a difference between murder and manslaughter. It's not clearly just life for life. Do you see? Like this person died, it can be traced to you, you must die. There's clearly a category, and it starts here, for somebody dying by accident. But the, the person who was related to them could have enacted justice God allows the provision if you can catch them. <laughs> That's literally it. Okay, so the one who killed somebody by accident had to flee to where? Do you guys remember? There was a handful of cities inside of Israel. They were called cities of, cities of refuge. That's right. And so the whole system was set up understanding, this is crazy stuff, understanding and trusting that God was sovereign over all things. The whole system was dependent upon that. 
because they killed somebody. It was an accident. I got to run. But the avenger of blood, that's what they called the person who had the right to, to hold judgment over the person who accidentally killed somebody. Once he finds out, he's going to try to catch me. I got to move quick. And so the whole system is relying upon God's sovereignty over all things so that the innocent may be innocent in God's eyes or just forgiven or set free according to God's eyes and his laws of judgment, and those guilty would be dealt with. Do you see how that system is built upon that? It's built upon that. It's the foundational understanding is that God is sovereign all, over all things. What's interesting here is that that's also helpful for us whenever we go through situations where we feel like we don't get justice. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where you, you went through a situation and you're like, I don't, think, I don't think that was just. But you don't have a biblical path to an appeal for authority. You know what I'm talking about? Because what is the biblical path for an appeal to authority? You have to do what? You've got to have witnesses. And the Bible says how many? Well, if you're dealing with an elder, you've got to have what? At least two. Now, remember, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that evidence does count as a type of witness. You all remember that? So witness doesn't necessarily mean two physical people who saw something go down. Like evidence can count as a witness against someone, which is why um, whenever somebody would accuse a woman of not being a virgin upon marriage, the parents of that woman would go get the bedsheets from the night of consummation and show them to the priest. You don't need me to go into more details here, right? We got this? Okay, great. I'm glad we got this. And they'd be like, oh no, there's evidence of virginity here, you know, because evidence counts as a witness. There's a witness to the truth. All right, so anyway... Y'all didn't know we were going to talk about that today, did you? Um, So anyway, the important thing for all of us to be pulling back out of this, so what we're trying to understand and get into our brains, is that God's law is good, and we, we trust in the sovereignty of God in our sufferings, in our trials, in even times that we feel like are unjust, He's a help to us. We can believe, hey, I went through this. God said He's got justice. I don't have the evidence to get justice here in this world, but God says what? that he's the God of all justice, and vengeance is what? His. It belongs to him, and so you can trust him. And that's the same reason that these laws were set up the way that they were, because they presupposed the sovereignty of God over all things, including bad things, which is what the Bible always assumes. Why is there a good God if bad things happen in the world? Because you don't know how exactly God's going to work those bad things for good, but he promises to do it every time, and he always does always does. Questions? So there's a different category between murder and manslaughter. Intentional deserves death. Manslaughter, there needs to be a trial, and then there's going to be some decisions, and the high priest is going to come and be involved with it. Um, There's other fun things that we don't have time to get into. That's okay. All right, let's move on. Verse 15, and let's talk about the death penalty for bad children. I told y'all we were going to get into it. Started with, some of y'all are looking at me like, wait, my kids? You know, like, no, just hold on. We're going to get through this. It's okay. It's okay. Verse 15. And I want you to pay attention to the way these commandments are stacked. Verse 15. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to Okay, so clearly we've got the command against man-stealing, right? You see that plainly. Okay, so duh, all, everything we talked about, biblical slavery, this category is not involved in that. If you steal a man and sell him, you are to be executed. God had a high view of people. We are made in the image of God. It's inescapable. The categories of biblical slavery don't mean slavery in the way that we understand it from the 1800s. It means indentured servitude, you own the labor, not the person. Got it? 
Great review. All right, now verse 17. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. I just heard a kid in the back say it. That's so cute, the children. Look, they know God's laws. Okay, now listen, listen, listen. Did you see the way those three commands are stacked? It's a violation against a parent. And then it talks about man-stealing. And then it's a violation against a parent again. Isn't that interesting? And all three of those commands, the proper form of judgment is what? <laughs> the kid's like, stop saying they're going to kill me. You know, like, stop it. I don't want that proclaimed. No, I'm going to get through this. You're going to be fine. Here we go. You're going to be fine. So what we're dealing with, what you're seeing happen here, is the law of God working as a testimony. Now, this is very important. The law of God working as a testimony. Now, what that means is that God is laying out His laws in order to illustrate something very important for us to understand. Now, His law is still His law. I'm not saying that it's only an image and we don't obey it. Obviously, we obey it. But the way that it's written is significant. These three laws applying back to back to back are about God Himself and the image of God. Okay? Now, here's what I mean. Think about the relationship between God and His people. If we rebel against God, what does He say is going to happen? What did He say was going to happen to Adam and Eve in the garden? If they rebelled against Him, what's the consequence? And what is parent-child relationships supposed to represent on the earth right now? God and His children. We are imaging to our children what a relationship between God and them looks like. And so, of course, the same standard applies here because it acts as a testimony. Do you see the difference? What it's really saying is it's pointing ultimately to our relationship with God Himself. Do y'all follow with me here? And this is, you got to put this category in the back of your brain. This is kind of like, uh, this is kind of like apocryphal literature. Um, we don't have a category for this anymore. We don't understand how laws are supposed to not just be legalistic, but also mean something greater. Right? This is an example to us that we need to have very clearly embossed on our hearts that the law is not just a law, you do this, I, this happens. It, it points to something greater, okay? And it points to our relationship with God Himself. That's why these high standards are put in place. Now, the overall like moral instruction or, or implication here is that God's hierarchies in your life matter. That's the point here, okay? God's hierarchies in your life matter. And that and hierarchies, remember, what were the examples of hierarchies? Well, there's three. What are the three examples of hierarchies that we got here? The earth's not flat. We're not an egalitarian society. Everybody's not perfectly equal. Like, that's not, nobody thinks that. Even the socialists don't think that, okay? They think somebody's in charge. They just want it to be them. But so what's, what's the general gist? So like inside of the family sphere, how does the hierarchy work? Who's, who's the top? The father, the husband. The, the, that's why we say the word patriarchy. Patriarchy literally just means father rule, right? It's a, it's a bad word in today's society. It's actually a great word because the father, his job is to lay down his life for the people in his household that he's responsible for. In fact, that's where we get the husband from. Husband, the etymology of the word is housebound. See, y'all got it. It means you're bound to the home. It means you're laying down your life. It means that your strength is for your wife and for your children. It means that you're oriented out to fight and protect and, and make sure that they're provided for. Like all of that stuff, all of that stuff. 
if y'all come to Wednesday night Bible study, it'd be helpful, you know, because you'd have a few more categories. And I think most of you do. Um, so we see that, that there's these hierarchical systems. What about the state? Who's the head of the state? In our world, it's the elected officials, right? Whoever happens to be the elected official. Um, but uh, who's the head of the, uh, I don't know, of the church? Church, it's the elders and the pastors, right? God regards his hierarchy with a, with a high authority. And if we're, rebelling against higher, if we're rebelling against God's representative that he's put in front of us in the hierarchical order, we should interpret that ultimately as a rebellion against God. Now, there's a right way to do an appeal to authority. We talked about that already. There's a right way to do an appeal to authority. But there's also a wrong way, and the wrong way is just rebellion against your authority, where you say, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm out of here. I'll see you later. Like, we're not trying to lead a rebellion here. But we do want to lead a, a right appeal to authority insofar as we can, which is why we uh, understand the doctrine of the lesser magistrate, which is why, y'all remember that? The doctrine of the lesser magistrate, which is whenever there's an issue with somebody who's in high ruling authority, you appoint, appeal to somebody closer to you, more, more close to you, that perhaps will grant you a, an, a, an appeal or some type of an amendment. Um, we operate in a society, that one's hard for us to get because we operate in a society where we think the bigger the government, the more authority they have. And so we say, well, the federal government overruled that, so that's better. It's actually the opposite direction. It's actually the opposite direction, which we do believe in for some things, but not all things. Am I talking too fast? Not fast enough. All right, all right, all right, all right. We're going then. We're going. All right, so there is an understanding of all these different things. Rebellion against God's order is a problem. That's what we're trying to be instructed here. <clears throat> and what we want to make sure that we're doing is whenever we're applying the testimony of the law, when we speak about case laws, it's important for us to also say, don't forget, guys, you will be cursed and cut off if you continue to rebel against God, but there's still time to turn. There's still time to repent because you're hearing it right now. Do you get what I'm saying? You will be cut off. You will be judged. You will be rule, uh, ruined if you continue to rebel against God, but there's still time to repent. There's still time to repent, and you can repent now. All right, let's ask some fun questions. What did Jesus think about these particular laws about the execution of, um, of uh, kids for rebellion against their parents. What did Jesus think about them? Does anybody know? Nobody? Y'all don't even want to try? Matthew 15. What did Jesus say? Not a jot, not a tittle of it's going to go away. He upheld the law. In fact, if you read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, what did Jesus actually do with the law? He elevated it. Moses said y'all could have a divorce. Uh-uh. I ain't here for that. Moses just said y'all could have a divorce because y'all wouldn't leave Moses alone. Right? Uh, he, he goes as far to say, uh, you've heard it said that, you know, committing adultery is a, is a sin. But I tell you, if you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you've committed adultery. I tell you, you've heard it said that murder is a sin. But I'm going to tell you, if you look at a brother with, mur with uh, evil in your heart, with hatred in your heart, you've committed murder. He's like, no, 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 no. What did he do actually do? He elevated the law. He didn't throw it away. He said, hey, y'all need to pay attention. <laughs> and he raised the stakes. A lot of times we, we know in our minds, we like to imagine soft, effeminate, long-haired hippie Jesus, okay, who's nothing but love all the time, and we forget that he's like throwing tables and beating people with whips and elevating the law. You know, like he, we forget that part. It's not long-haired, effeminate, hippie Jesus. That's nowhere. That's not Bible Jesus, okay? Bible Jesus was jacked, and he could take you, all right? That's, I'm just, listen, there's a reason that everybody, every money changer in the temple ran for their lives, okay? 
because he was intimidating and he was going to take them out. And they knew that he was going to take them out. And you know what's interesting is nobody even tried to mess with him after that. No, the, it doesn't say, and then the centurion showed up and tried to arrest him. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say any of that. Anyway, Bible Jesus was jacked. Okay, so maybe that's not technically true. But the point is, he was intimidating. And he was intimidating in the right way. He intimidated the heck out of a lot of people. All right. Jesus upheld the law in Matthew and 15. And therefore, we can understand something like this. It's not unjust. It's not unjust. Now, I got some more qualifiers for you, so we'll get to those in just a moment. So, the death penalty, when we see the death penalty in the Bible, here's something that you got to keep in your brain. That's the maximum sentence, okay? Do y'all get what I'm saying? The death penalty is the maximum sentence. It does not necessarily mean that the death penalty must be applied in every single scenario. Victims had the rights, victims of crimes. This is why the avenger of blood pursued the person who accidentally killed somebody else, because the victims, or the closest person to, had the rights to press charges or not. You see what I'm saying? They had the right to say, no, you're going down for this, or, well, okay, I'm, I'm not going to pursue this. I'm not going to pursue this particular crime. They also had the rights to lessen sentencing, just like God did to who? When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what was their consequence? Say it loud. What was their consequence? Death, right? Death. It was, he said, if you eat this, you will die. But what does God do? He doesn't kill them right away, right? They still have death, but it's delayed. He's restrained. Do you see what I'm saying? He's restrained the consequences of their action because he's the one who was sinned against. He's the one who has the right to execute their judgment according to his terms. The same principles apply here. This is very important. Now, if the victim is dead, state has certain responsibilities. If it was an intentional murder, the state has certain responsibilities. They must execute. And this is why many of our states still hold to capital punishment for murder, but a lot of other things we lessen because we're expecting the, the victim to just deal with it, which is ridiculous. Anyway, <clears throat> all right. Um, if you find, also, if you find things, Caleb, I got to go, buddy. I would love to answer your questions, maybe later. I got to run through this. Um, the other examples that you're going to find throughout the scriptures is going to be opportunities of unknown deaths. Do you remember that? The, if there's somebody who died, uh, they find the closest, the closest town to where the body fell. Do you remember these case laws? They found the closest town to where the body fell. They take it to that town. That's that priest's, those priests' responsibility to sort everything out and deal with it, and they have to make sacrifices if they can't find the... Because there's still blood responsible for death, okay? And so if they can't find the actual perpetrator, then they have to make a sacrifice and say, this is not on us. This is not on our hands. There's no guilt here with us. Do y'all follow that? Okay, great. Um, now... Let's talk about this a little bit. The word for child in those passages that we went, just went through, it doesn't mean little kid. So relax, okay? It doesn't mean little kid. It, more, it means um, someone who is a part of a family lineage. So really, the picture of what we're actually seeing here is a, a child of a parent who, you know, is in rebellion to that parent um, but they're kind of old enough to where they know better. That's really the picture that we're getting here. Because in the, in the Bible, that's... Remember when we talked about families operating more as like little governments? 
especially in the Old Testament, and they should still operate that way today. Uh, we've left this behind. But the family operates like little governments, and big families like Abraham's family um, operated more like little, little towns, okay? And Abraham was the sheriff of the town, and he would, you know, have to execute judgment inside of his town. And whenever they were roving through the wilderness, Moses was the sheriff. You get what I'm saying? And that's why he had to have under-sheriffs and deputies, and remember Jethro gave him that advice about how to have people in control? Yeah, you all remember that? Okay, great. So what's going on here is actually not just a little kid who sassed his mom, okay? What's going on here is actually treason. Do you see the right category there? Because you're dealing now with somebody who's a part of a little government who's usurping the authority of the sheriff. Now, that's a big deal. When you put it in that context, like somebody's usurping the authority of the king, uh-oh, we've got to deal with this. Now, it's ultimately the king's decree as to how judgment will be played out against that child. Because remember, it doesn't mean death is the requirement every single time. But it does mean that the possibility of death is on the table, depending on the decree of the king or the father in this case. Y'all see what I'm talking about? Yeah. Bingo. Bingo. You see that in Absalom? Who else do you see that in? Adam. We talked about that one already. Adam's rebellion against his father, God. See that piece there? There's tons of examples of this throughout the scriptures. But do you see these pieces playing out? And it was David's responsibility to do what? To deal with his son. He didn't do it. And what happened? It culminated into a huge issue where David still refused to deal with his son. And eventually it almost cost him the whole kingdom. Even up to the very end, David refused to deal with his son. And I can't remember, was it Joab that came up to him and was like, get your nonsense together, king. Like, you are, your house is being usurped, and all your people are still loyal to you by some amazing factor. But if you don't get your stuff together, we're out. Figure it out, king. And that kind of woke David up, it seemed like. And he was like, oh yeah, I've been neglecting my duties, my bad. All the while, David's described as a man after God's own heart. Amen. We have hope. We have hope. Okay, great. Um... But what about Jesus and the woman caught in adultery? I want to spend a few minutes on this specifically. Because if you just cursory read through the woman caught in adultery, what does Jesus say that throws all of us for a loop in that passage? What does he say? Oh, I have been in so many debates about that. I can't even tell you. And it's for your benefit. Are you ready? Because Martin Luther says a controversy makes one a good study. Well, here you go. Learn this by instruction, not by experience. Or maybe God will give you some experience where it hammers in even harder. That'd be great. But listen, what about John chapter 6, the story of the woman caught in adultery? All right, well, let's go back and just remember the whole story and then walk through it bit by bit together so that we can understand more specifically what's going on. First off, the story opens with what? Who shows up with this woman and throws her at Jesus' feet? The Pharisees do, which is interesting, isn't it? Because who's the one who's supposed to have the right to prosecute? The husband who's sinned against. Where's he at? Nowhere to be found. The passage doesn't talk about him, and it also doesn't say that she doesn't have a husband. She's caught in adultery, which implies she should. Also, where's the man that she was caught with? He ain't around either. If anybody's going to get judgment, it's both of them, not just her. Okay, problems from the jump. Jesus stands up. 
He looks around the situation, and he's got one phrase for him. Remember this phrase? He says, what? Let he who is without sin cast the first stone, right? Now, here's the interesting part. See, this is where the little bit of word study work helps you out. If you go in and take a look over that sin and do some thorough work with it, you understand that it's not talking about sin in general. It's talking about this sin specifically. Do you see what I'm saying? It's not saying sin like ambiguous, any type of sin at all. It's talking about what's going on right in front of them. Jesus says to the Pharisees around that have brought her, because Jesus knows the heart of man, he says, whichever one of you is not also in an adulterous affair, you throw the first rock. That's the point. And what happens? They all leave. Why? Because they've all got unrighteous, unconfessed sin in their hearts. And Jesus is not about to let these unrighteous judges be the ones who execute judgment. You see? There's the full context. That's what's actually going on. Because if Jesus just said, let him without sin cast the first stone, and that means on the surface, you know, the way that we read the English, then that throws away all of the law that Jesus said that he was upholding. Remember? That's, that's, that's not possible. That's not what it means. It would mean now no one ever on the planet ever has a right to execute any type of judgment, no matter what the scenario, right? It would mean that guy just killed my kid. Well, I sinned once, so I can't do anything about it. Please don't kill any more of my kids. Like, that's stupid, right? We know on the, on the surface, we're like, no, that's dumb. But we still read that passage, and it is, it's weaponized against us um, by those who hate God's law, to try and marginalize us and say, see, you can't say anything to the world around you. See? Because you've got sin too. Whereas the point, of the, and this is why Jesus gave the teaching, if you're going to go to your brother about the speck in his eye, what do you do first? You take the log out your own eye. It's not a hyperbolic statement where he's saying, oh, if you've got sin, you can't ever talk to anybody else. He says, pull your log out because you can see it better and then go help your buddy with his speck that you can barely see. In other words, what he's really trying to teach is you see your own sin, or at least you should, way better than you see your buddies. Deal with your nonsense first, then go deal with theirs. He doesn't say, therefore, never deal with it at all. You see what I'm saying? This, those two passages plus the judge not lest ye be judged passage, those are like the big punches in the gut that if we don't learn how to get wrong, we're not going to be allowed by the world, get around, we're not going to be allowed by the world to have a prophetic ministry like God is calling us to do, okay? Judge not lest ye be judged. Well, the Bible says judge with what? Right judgment, which means not by appearances, by, by, by the facts, by the law and by evidence, okay? There's a right judgment that you should have. Judge not lest ye be judged means judge properly, don't jump to conclusions and judge according to the facts and judge according to the authority that you've been given as well. Sometimes it's not your lane. So don't try to get more responsibility than you should have. You know, rumors are terrible things. Don't cast judgment based on hearsay and rumors. If you don't know, just say, I don't know. I don't want to deal with that. And then tell your friend to shut up in a loving way, in a loving way. Does that make sense? So <clears throat> Jesus's point and all of that was that untried adulterers should not be witnesses in a trial on adultery, <laughs> right? That's his point. He's saying, hey, hold on, guys. Uh, and Jesus also is not saying 
Well, I won't get into that very clearly. But y'all see the, you see the deal with, with John chapter 6? We'll skip all the rest of this. Do y'all have questions? Hot dog, this might be the earliest we've ever finished. Do you feel special? You should. You should. Do y'all have questions? Okay, so don't forget. I'm going to remind you one more time. Don't forget, there is no membership class after church. There will be on the 25th. Go find Jess Carlson if you want to come to membership class on the 25th, and she will put your name on the list. Everybody got it? Okay, love you. Bye. See you all in a few minutes.